Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, my co-host, Kizzy Joseph, and I are talking with Tamika Ramsey. Ramsey is the owner and principal associate at P. Ramsey & Associates. She's also a mother and grandmother her eldest is an essential worker who, with his wife, are on the front line during this COVID-19 epidemic. At home, she's a daughter going through the most unusual of senior high school years and a son growing up in this uncertain normal of homeschooling and social distancing. Kamika is a nationally sought-after consultant that specializes in providing training and coaching to grow the capacity of organizations and small businesses. She's worked tirelessly to strengthen grassroots organizations across the country that are committed to improving their communities for every individual. This interview is rich with knowledge on a personal and professional level. There was so much to digest, unpack, and reflect upon intergenerationally for African Americans especially women. Don't you think, Kizzy? That is right, Michelle. We look forward to you listening to this passionate conversation as Tamika shares her personal experiences from childhood and motherhood. Not only do they serve as testimonies to her ambition and success, but they also spark inspiration as to how we can build a strong, lasting, thriving black future and legacy. Tamika? Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I wanted to know, how are you and your family, especially your son and his wife? So everybody is doing okay. Uh, My son and his wife, who both work at Meijer, took some time off as some of the staff had started to come down with COVID and they just wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to protect their son. Um, unfortunately, uh-huh. the time off was unpaid, and so um, my daughter-in-law, my son, went back to working his second job, um, which is at a fast food restaurant, which also, you know, puts him at risk. But um, just doing the drive-through has helped that. Um, so, you know, just like so many other essential workers who we are lifting up during this time but just refuse to pay a living wage, are just trying to make sure that they're staying safe, keeping their jobs, and, and, and making sure that they can provide for their son. You know, that's the thing that you hear everybody talking about. Oh, and salute our essential workers. But it is. I mean, many of them don't have paid sick time, don't have time off. You know, they're not making a living wage, 
And these are real decisions you have to make, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, food on the table, rent, take care of your family, you know, and, and put yourself at risk. Yeah, and I, and I kept telling my son, I'm like, can y'all just take a couple of more weeks off? And he was like, who's going to pay the rent? Like, And, and that was like, he, like the rent has to be paid. And we know that, like, in the state of Michigan, there's a moratorium on evictions, but they haven't stopped rent or mortgages. So you might not get evicted right now, but as soon as that moratorium is lifted, there's a possibility that legal proceedings can be started right away. And so, so, you know, people are just trying to, to maintain and sustain their, their quality of life right now. Mm, you know, this all makes me curious as to, you know, what the future means for essential workers in general because, you know, before this pandemic, you know, they were disregarded as undervalued and disposable. And now that we see that, you know, these workers, yeah, it makes me think about the future of essential workers, especially since before this pandemic, they were undervalued and deemed disposable. And now that, you know, we're in this situation, you know, they do have value. They should be respected. They should be paid far more than they are getting paid now. So I really, and, you know, these essential workers are also primarily of color. So, you know, I really hope that you know, policy changes for essential workers to have um, a more livable wage and life situation. Yeah, we're we're hoping like that. Like this unfortunate pandemic helps to lift up a lot of issues that this country has been dealing with and has been able to sweep under the rug because you know th- there hasn't been a spotlight on it and. And it would be scary to have to deal with some of the issues, like, that we have to deal with. Like, it's really scary and unknown. But the pandemic has given us, like, what, what, who do we qualify as essential workers and how can we compensate them as such, right? Because the mm-hmm. grocery store people were like, I would feel crazy paying somebody $15 an hour just to put some fruits and vegetables out. And now we're asking these same people to risk their lives to put fruits and vegetables out so we can eat. Right, so so mm-hmm. I, I just think this pandemic has given us the opportunity to have these conversations, and it's no longer what if or what would it look like if this happens. It is, it has happened. This is what it has looked like, and now these are the steps we can take to make sure we're taking care of essential workers that really help keep this country moving. When CEOs are the ones locked in their ivory towers, being protected. Mm-hmm. You know. But that's your son too, and now that you see that they're starting to open it up, as a as a parent of an essential worker, when you see these yahoos up in Lansing with their guns, or you see people who are not even cognizant of their privilege, quick to like get to their summer homes and get out on their their you know boats, and knowing that they're going to go into Myers and they expect everything to be stopped. You know, they might, may or may not wear a mask. They probably won't keep a, a good social distance, maybe from each other, but often they act like the essential workers are invisible. What do you, when you see some of these images and, or if you're out and you see someone, do you as a mother just want to grab them and shake them? 
Uh, that's that's putting it kindly. <laughs> I, I I get I get really frustrated, really frustrated. But once again, right because like I was a social worker, um, my grandmother, um, my my family is from Mississippi, um, and my grandmother was born into sharecropping. Her mother was a slave. Um, and so it's like I don't have to go that far back. And to hear some of the stories that my grandma used to tell me, it's like it's just resonating again. Like you have wealthy, affluent white people who feel like it is the job of the colored people who are working in the restaurants, working in the, the grocery stores, like it's working at the lawn and garden section. It is their responsibility to give their life for them to live their privileged lives. Right, so it's like it's not. This is not the first time that our country has gone uh, and, mm-hmm. and and had to deal with some of these same issues. It might be manifesting differently, but the values behind it is that poor people don't deserve the quality of life, and 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 they if if it's between them and my privilege, my privilege comes first. So mm-hmm. I I push back on all of that, and and I'm I'm like I'm on Facebook like this is white supremacy. This is privilege that a lot of people don't have. Um, I talked to a young lady yesterday um, who used to be a restaurant worker, and and she said, you know, we were talking to some essential workers, calling them superheroes, and every every time, and this is, you know, it's it's just, it's mind-blowing. Superheroes, like you think about them, you think about Wonder Woman and Spider-Man and all of them, like they made a decision and a choice to put on mm. that mask and a cape, our essential workers, it's like you either go to work or you lose your job. So, so mm-hmm. we're forcing them to do it, and then we're lifting them up like, yay, but we still refuse to pay them a living wage. Like we, like we actually as a country need to sit back and think about the things that we're, we're repeating from history and how we're harming people even more going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that often, and, you know, you hear – white people. I mean, let's just call it. We, you hear white people, and then and they're talking. It's not that any recognition of their privilege. Like, oh, I can't go to my cottage up north. And, you know, you've got people who are living in urban areas, particularly in southeast Michigan, who are trying to figure out how they're going to keep their one apartment here, yeah. might not have water, you know, the conditions they are, and, like, it, it's brought a lot to the bubbled up that we as, as black people know happens in urban areas to black people. But I still often, even, like, when some, quote, unquote, progressive people don't feel that they get it, you know. They think that privilege is that person over there, not them. Right. And, and and I and I always think and I you know have had several epiphanies um, late at night usually after alcohol but I just think like it's, it's because I'm, like, I'm I'm the stress isn't there like because the day to day stress of my job can you know sometimes weigh heavy but just sometimes like late at night when I'm just like calm right before bed like I have these epiphanies. And, and one of them is that because I've been trying to figure out, like, there are so many black women, um, young black women, too, like, like 35 and younger, 
who have been a part of the progressive movement, and I use air quotes when I say progressive, who have just said, I can't do this work. And I'm like, why is it that, you know, we're, we're, we are privileged to be in this space because, like, we are helping to change policy and create laws. And, and why are these black women just falling off so fast? And it is because when you live, so I, I go to work every day and I fight. I fight for policies for black and brown people to make sure that they have the same quality of life as a white person who has privilege. And then when I come home, it is the same fight. Like, I am fighting, if, you know, watching my, my son, and I have, like, health issues that makes me a high risk for COVID, and so my husband gets nervous when, when I babysit my grandson because my, my son and his wife have to go to work. So I live that life, right? Like, I, you know, live in a community that is, is very heavily um, black and brown and, and under-resourced, so I live it. So it's not like I go to work every day and, and then I, I, I take off that stress of work and leave it at the door and go home to a better environment. And, that, and that's what the privilege of the progressive white people is, is that they mean all good. Like they work very hard, but because of their privilege, they can take this, this stress off and go home and not have to deal with the day-to-day -day yeah. so when, mm -hmm. when, when we wake up to it and go to sleep to it, like they wake up comfortable, they go to work and punch in and deal with it. Then they punch out, and then they go home back to that comfort. Now, you, you talked about, when you brought up another thing. Not only are, you know, this mother of a son and his wife are working it, but you have kids at home. And, I mean, and so you're also dealing with the whole part of, you know, your daughter who's graduating, you know, none of that thing, that carefree thing that we, that generational thing, like, oh, happiness, and you've got a son. What are you hoping that, what are you trying to shelter them from but also teach them about from this point in time? You know, I, this is one of the things that I was I was talking to my husband about, um, and and like so I have been really stressed. One, I have type A personality, which is horrible, and I'm a procrastinator. So those two things like will kill you together. Um, <laughs> but I was like, you know, when Africans were kidnapped and put on a boat. You know, you had some who said, I, and I, I will not be a slave and jumped off the ship, right, to drown in the middle of the ocean. And you had some who came here, and then some of those fought against slavery. The other ones just, just got acclimated to it. And, and so I'm like, but those who started fighting as soon as they hit the shores of this new country did not see and live to see slavery end, but that didn't stop them from fighting. And so I think of, you know, my grandmother who on purpose said, I will not be a sharecropper, and, and got married and moved from Tylertown, Mississippi, to Pontiac, Michigan, because Michigan was one of the states where there were opportunities for black people. And for my dad, who his father died when my father was in sixth grade, and my dad um, quit, quit school so he, he, he quit school with a sixth-grade education but went on to work at GM and, and to own properties and flip um, and making sure that because he didn't have an education, education was so important to him for me and my sister. And so my sister and I were the first, 
you know, to graduate college and, and have a college degree. And now my kids know that college is an expectation. So it's not getting to the finish line because this is not a, a, a sprint. This is a, 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 a relay race right, a long-distance relay race, and, and to make sure that our children don't start from the, the start line. Like, they are halfway in the race and we're passing on the baton, and people of color have not been able to do that. We've seen parts, points in history where the baton was being passed and, like, the entire communities were burnt to the ground because they saw black people uh, accumulating wealth. So, so it is. It is. We need to continue and treat this as a relay race, and make sure that we are giving the next generation and putting them a little bit farther than what we did, and making sure that they have the resources to continue this. Because you know, it, it's just like the Africans with slavery. They fought. You know, a lot of them died fighting and knew that they were not going to see the freedom that they, they were fighting for, but that didn't stop them. And I, even Dr. Martin Luther King said that, like, I will not get to the promised land, mm-hmm. but he knew his children would. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we need to start looking at when, when we're talking about all of these injustices that we have to face and why we continue to stay in the work. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that your son just had a birthday. Yes. What do you hear? Do you, do you or do you hear? What what has he told you that inspires you to keep the fight? You know, I don't know if either one of y'all have seen Blackish. Yeah. The TV show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me and my husband feel like they didn't came to our house, and, and have, <laughs> like, that's our life right there. That's our mm-hmm. life. My husband and I both grew up with single parents. Like, in poverty, like, my husband, like, refuses to eat spaghetti because that was his mama's struggle meal. Like, she would make a big pot and they'd have to eat it all week. Mine was red beans and rice. So we get triggered really easy. And our children, like, we tell our children these stories, but they, they're so far removed. But but my, my, my 8-year-old, my son just turned 8 yesterday, and and I'll I'll be frustrated and I'll be talking to my husband like trying to work out work problems, and he says, "Mama, you run this, and people look up to you, and I look up to you, so you got to fix it because that's what we expect." And this was from right. the seven year old, right? <laughs> and so you know sometimes we get stressed out, we get in our heads about are we enough? Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing it right? And and it is somebody who is looking at us from a position of trust um, Mm -hmm. who will tell us exactly what they think and and just gives us the strength that we need just to keep it moving. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's funny how I often tell people, say, well, has anybody ever said something to you? And I can recall once when my my son was was young. I don't know where he was. I don't know what grade he was. Maybe high school or stuff. And, And, you know, and I was sort of going through one of my moments, you know, like, oh, and I've been a single mother. And he said, you know, you always show me, he said, that there were challenges, but you always found a way to get over the challenge. So it was like, you know, so what can't we do? And it's important that, you know, that as mothers we see that, and I think it's also very significant that it's close to mothers, and Kizzy is a new mm-hmm. mother, that this is something that, you know, one day, you know, 
your kid, your children are watching you, and that they, you are their their hero. You know, you are that mm-hmm. person who's showing them how to make a way out of no way. And I know often when I speak with young speak mothers, with mothers. Or, or single mothers, that's one of the things that I try to bring up to them. You know, like, you know, they're watching, they're learning at your side from the beginning. So, and, and you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's important. And I know, like, we, one of the things, like, we don't have the opportunity that, that we used to have. Um, is that, like, I remember my grandmama, like, when my my aunts and uncles were having babies, like, my grandma would go to the house and, 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 like, be there for a week or two to help the new mama. And I think it was during that time that that encouragement was given, that that advice was given, you know, that that, that, that passing on, like, knowledge from one generation to the next was given. And then as we just got busy and it's like now when you have a new baby, the mama don't want nobody in the house or it's it's not appropriate Mm -hmm. to be there. The grandmama is working, you know, and living her own life so she doesn't have the opportunity to be there. And and I'm like, you know, I I told my son, um, I was like, you know, I – Please don't have any kids. Like like that has I I, I bribed them. Like I was like your inheritance will be amazing, um, because I'm just like it. It hurts me that I brought black black little boys into this world, and now I fear for their safety just when they go to the store. You know, and God forbid, not with these masks. Like you know, we we told our kids don't wear hoodies because of Trayvon Martin. Now we're having them wear masks and going into stores. Like it is so serious. I, you know. I, I I tried to bribe my kids. My son was like, "No, you know, I want to, I want to procreate my wife and I want to have kids." And so when my grandson came, like, I I was I was there as much as they they allowed me to be without trying to overstep. But like, I was there while my daughter in law was in labor, like in the hospital for two days um, until they mm. figured she had to have an emergency C section. I have seen mm. my grandson every every week since he has been born, like, I would go over there to sit, you know, to let her sleep, like, just to provide. And I think that's when, you know, those uh, buyers passing on, like, that knowledge would help. And, And just to know that, like, our kids watch us during the good or bad. They might not talk, they might not repeat, but they see us. And and they get their strength or their insecurities by how we do things. And and my grandma, you know, was an amazing woman and she used to share these stories with me and my sister. And so even though my mama and daddy had to work, my grandmother was there. So I just think like keeping that passage on and making sure that we're having conversations with new mamas to be like my daughter-in-law, like, they call the doctors for everything. And my son was like, we're overreacting. I'm like, y'all new parents. You can overreact. Like, you can overreact with all of your kids. Like, that's your right because you're trying to protect your kids. So making sure that they don't feel like they're they're doing too much, especially now with COVID happening, like, you want to make sure that you're identifying if somebody is sick. But just to make sure that people know that, that they can be parents their own way and it doesn't have to look like what they've seen or what their parents did. And I, I think, like, that's one of the best things that we can do for new parents is just to to be there to listen and let them confide and not judge them while helping direct them in the way in which they want to go. Well, we're going to take our first break, and um, I'm, I'm just, I just so enjoy talking to you. 
to 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 you, Tamika. But uh, we're going to take our first break, and we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And Tamika, you know, I mean, you talked about something, and, and you know, and I let kids do One of the things that I I always thought, you know, that they should have uh, leave time for fathers because, you know, there's a lot of babies that are a lot of work. And <laughs> so when Kizzy had her daughter, um, my son was able to take time off and be there and we were talking recently with this COVID thing because also he's a teacher. And I said, you know what? Well, you know, I think that it doesn't take the full burden off the, off the mother because, you know, your mom, you got to do so much. But to have that time to see those amazing changes, I think is really great. And I think that often in our community, there has been that, you know, not having a father around, not having this. And it sounds like to me like your son is, is concerned about bringing it back to that. How do we build the black family? You know, and I hear, you know, yes, I've watched the live. You know, your husband is right there engaged, involved. You know, fathers are becoming engaged and involved in that. And it's equally as it's not. It will never take the place of mama. I'm just going, hey, I claim that. No man will ever take the place of mama. But as, as our community, I mean, I often tell people, you know, when they told us we couldn't be married, we found a way to be married, even if it meant that we had to jump a broom and quiet because we wanted to hold our families together at a time when they were ripping our families apart. And still, in other ways, sometimes economically, sometimes societal, you know, they're breaking down uh, up our, our families. But how do you see building the black family also as part of what we've talked about before is building legacy? Yeah, so I, I think one, one of the things, and, and so for me, like, I, I see that I, like, I find, like, TV shows or cultures that were able to be sustained, so so not ripped apart, ripped away from their culture like Africans were. Um, and so now I'm watching this new show called Family Karma, um, and it's about uh, Indians um, from India. And, and, and it just shows, like, so, so they have multiple, multiple generations living in the house. It, it, the, the children are not seen as less than if they stay with their parents. 
um, they're, they're looked to, to build generational wealth and then move out. So it's not like, oh, you hit 18, it's time to go. And so, and, and, and that was because, like, they have been able to evolve within their culture over centuries, where Africans, you know, were ripped away from their country. They were brought into this new land, like, mingled so that, right, because we know that Africans in Africa is a, it, it's not just one, one race or just one type mm-hmm. of people. So, so we, we're here and they mixed us up, you know, with people who speak different languages so that we have to, to normalize things, we have to learn their language. Like we have to learn their norms. We have to leave our culture behind. And some of those things are still here. But one of the things is, you know, it's like you, if, if you live with your mama after you're 18, something wrong with you. And it's nothing wrong. It's nothing wrong. And so until we start to once again normalize, like, those type of things, like, I, I used to tell my kids, like, I wish my parents could afford for, for, for all of us to live in one house. Like, it was a house big enough because I would have stayed with my daddy until I couldn't. Mm. I, my daughter um, is mm. eight, well, 17. She turns 18 in, in October. She graduates from high school. And we moved into a house, and when we moved here, she was like, I want to paint my room. And, I, and I'm like, but you're turning 18. Aren't you going to move as soon as you can? And she was like, no. And she was like, not unless y'all make me. And I was like, I would never make you. So I'm like, I, just because she's turning 18 doesn't mean that she's ready to deal with, you know, the the world and all the stuff that comes with it. And so I think that if, if, if we allow our children to grow and not to just put them out once they hit a certain age, like that makes us an adult, then I think, like, we, we can start building those things. So my daughter is staying home. She's going to community college. She's going to be working for my consulting firm. And, and, and I'm going to continue to, to build in her. And then, and then as she, you know, grows up and my son and his grandson, like, they come here every week. So, so it is just about us normalizing being together, holding family close, holding community close, helping each other, and not that um, when when I was a kid, it was if I, if if I did something wrong and my mama was at work, my neighbor first my neighbor was gonna pop my butt and then tell my mama, and I was gonna be in trouble. And we moved to mind your business or this is my kid, don't worry about it. Like we need to just get back to community and the village that it actually takes to raise these kids that we're having. What experiences, whether in childhood or just in general, um, inspired you to get into social work? So I I got pregnant when I was 16, and it was hard. And, you you know, you would just think that resources would come to a teenage mother who, and I was still in school, you know, I was working, and there was just not the access to resources. The resources were there, but it was specific people who could get it. And, and that lack of access really bothered me um, in the exclusiveness, like you have to be this type of person to get help. Um, and it and it hurt me, and it hurt a lot of other young black women like me. And so I came into social work because I'm like, I need everybody to have access to things. Now, whether they want to work to get it is something totally different, but at least they have access to it. And so becoming a social worker allowed me to get information that normally had been held by gatekeepers and, and, and giving that, disseminating that information to 
everybody. And then helping them, if people said, I'm interested, then helping them to get to the point where they could access the resource. Um, so that has just been very important to me. Now, you know, you had a, a lot of time and you were in social work, and you went from Wayne State, and then you went to Oakland University. And um, we had talked before about what that experience was, but could you talk a little bit more? And people who don't know Michigan, um, Wayne State is like in the heart of Detroit. I, I think that it has a very diverse um, student population. Oakland University, though, is in suburbia. It is in what? Is it Rochester Hills? Someplace yes, up it there. is. It's yes. not far from Pontiac, but then it can almost be like night and day going from Pontiac to Oakland University. Yes. What made you choose Oakland University, and what was your experience like? What did you feel that you had to overcome that you would also share with others who might say, oh, I'm not going to go out there because I might be the only one or it's going to be difficult. So, I, you know, I, when I went to Wayne State, it was the, one of the top social work schools in the country. Um, and, and once again, my study group consisted of, like, for the entire two years I was there, because I went to OCC and got my associate's degree and then went into the social work program, um, was a white woman, uh, myself a black woman, a Lebanese, a Christian and a Muslim um, from Iraq. And, and this was our group. So we were able to talk about stereotypes, ask questions that may have seemed inappropriate um, because, you know, it, it's like what is your culture like? Like who is allied to you and why, you know, like all of that. So, so we were able to have those conversations. And I will cherish that because it helps me to understand and respect different cultures um, as much as my own. And then I went to OU um, because it was, once again, one of the best schools for public administration. And, I, you know, I had just had a, my, my youngest son, um, and it was close to home. And so I'm like, it, it, I, I heard some, you know, things about it, but I'm like, no, it's in Oakland County and, you know, it's in Arbon Hills and Rochester, and this is a very diverse, progressive area. And then you walk into the classroom and you're the only black girl. <laughs> like, what? Mm-hmm. Um, and then hearing older, so so there were a lot of older white men who were police officers or elected officials who had retired, um, were now going to school for their uh, masters in public administration. I think a lot of it was because at the time emergency management was happening, um, and you and you need an MPA to be an emergency manager, um, and it was like well, we're doing this so we can help people of color because they don't know how to take care of themselves. Mm. Um, or or Pontiac started going downhill when they, they started letting black people. And I'm like, what? Like, physically, mm-hmm. they actually said this stuff. And I'm looking and I'm like, mm, so what we're not going to do, right, because I have always been taught to fight, like what we're not going to do is, like, assume, like, any race is responsible for, like, the falling apart of any city state or country, like, like this is what we're not going to do. And white privilege is why you're saying this. And so it was a mm-hmm. lot of pushing back. It was a lot of, like, there were only a few people of color in these, in these rooms. Um, and, and, it, and I felt safer going to Wayne State, like, driving a half hour, 45 minutes away from my house. 
Um, and, and when we when I went to Wayne State, it was not this beautiful campus that you see now. Like, we had to walk in pairs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we had to stick together because it wasn't always safe. But I felt more comfortable at, in Cass Corridor than I did on the campus of OU. Mm. Mm. And, you know, and you're, and also you're from Pontiac. You didn't leave Pontiac. You know, you grew up in Pontiac, and you're still there now. And to have these people make these comments about, you know, this community, which is your community, did you also recognize that they didn't really know not only communities of color, but Pontiac itself and the people who lived there? Mhm. You know, it, it 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 and once again, it, it is learning like about the community, and and it's, Pontiac is just like just like Detroit, and 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 the same narrative happens around Detroit. Like Detroit was doing good until they started electing black mayors, and the black people were were stealing, and you know this is why Detroit is in the situation that it's in now. And if you don't know any better, if you don't, if you hadn't gone to school or done some research, you would probably be like, yes, because that's what it looks like, right? But it's like, but I'm like, uh, revenue sharing from the state to municipalities has decreased. Um, the state of Michigan owes the city of Detroit hundreds of thousands of dollars that mm-hmm. they have refused to pay. Like, every city is hurting in this state. It's not... And, and there have been white cities that have always been governed by white people that were in the same situations as both all of the cities that were a part of emergency management. We just don't lift those up, right? So until we start having some clear conversations and not just listening to the stories or the narrative that people are telling us and we repeat them so then they become fact and, and not just th- this is just how people feel, then we're, we're going to continue to be in the same issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, you're, you're from Pontiac. You've remained in Pontiac. You were, you're raising your family in Pontiac. You started a business in Pontiac, you know, and, and you often hear people say, oh, well, get yours and get out. Why'd you stay? Yeah, so, you know, my, my husband and I have this conversation a lot because he's from Kalamazoo. <laughs> Um, and so uh, when we when so we moved out of Pontiac for four years, um, and m- my daughter was going to a school of choice in Lake Orion, and in the winter time I was driving real slow, and she was late for school all the time because I you know there's a winding road and it just scared me. And I dropped her off at school late one time, and the secretary, um, while I was walking out, told my daughter, "If you're late one more time, you're going to get detention." So I, I politely hmm. turned myself around, and I was like, so I'm getting detention because my daughter doesn't drive to school, and y'all know we don't live here. Um, and so, she, you know, it was a, a point of friction, and my daughter came home and was like, Daddy, I think Mom was about to jump on the secretary, which was not true. <laughs> uh-huh. But my husband was like, maybe we should move here. <laughs> and there was an apartment complex right across the school, right across the street from the school that my daughter was attending. Um, 
And so we moved to Lake Oregon. But when we started talking about purchasing a house, I'm like, we have to go back to Pontiac. Those four years that we lived in Lake Oregon, my community was always Pontiac. When we came to the parks, we came to the parks in Pontiac. When we went to the store, we came to Pontiac. When we did, like, block parties or anything, like, Pontiac was our home because this is who our community is. Like, this is where both of my parents decided to have children. This is where my daddy and my grandmother are buried. Like, I can go to any side of town and tell you a story about, like, an experience that I had as a youth or as a child. And I want my kids to grow up in community. I want them to know, like, you know, that that they can go down the street if we need to and get some sugar. Like, I need them to understand that it takes more than just our household to survive. Like, we are a part of this community, and this is our village, and, and I will do everything that it takes to uplift this community and keep it sustainable, not for only my kids, but for my nieces and nephews and my friends' kids as well. Mm-hmm. So you work. And then you decided to, well, uh, okay, uh, I, before we do that, I noticed that um, recently you went and you talked, you know, you're an active member, and you, you went to the city council and you were talking about what has the city of Pontiac done for the people. Being uh, very, how important is it? not only for you, but to encourage others to not just live there, not just to, to, to be about it, to show up at these meetings, to talk about it, to raise these questions and to be aware of what's happening. You know, I think over time, like, people forgot that elected officials are actually elected and work for us and not the other way around. And that our quality of life, I, I tell people, you know, they, this is a presidential election year, and they're like, oh, we need to vote for president. It's important. It is important. But voting for your mayor and city council affects your daily quality of life. It, if I tell you that, that they decide to only pick up the trash once every two weeks, um, like they, they said in Detroit, and people were upset, like that because they don't want rodents, and, and all of this crazy stuff like trash to get around, like that affects your daily quality of life. And you know who makes those decisions? The mayor and the city council or the, the trustees and the supervisor if you live in a township. Like I want my quality of life to be good. I grew up in the place where people got shot all the time. Like we moved from one of the, the housing complex here because somebody, we lived in an apartment complex, somebody got shot two apartments down, and my son, who was maybe 11 at the time, was scared, scared to be home, yeah. scared to go outside. And so I'm like, and so I went to the city council, and this man used a quote from a movie talking about we need more books than bullets. And I'm like, yeah, I hear that, but what are you doing to stop that or to provide more mm. books, right, to make books more easy for people to get. And it was like, no. And at that point, I'm like, this man has, like, my, my safety and my child's safety in his hands, and he's trying to get reelected. Like, okay, so now it's like you need to be voted out. So it's important that we people understand that we hold the power. We get mad because we say D.C. is like a swamp. Well, we keep, we keep voting for the reptiles if, if, if that's the case. Like, we can decide who is in the best interest. And, and I always uplift this 
there's a difference between a politician and an elected official, right? Because a politician is going to tell you what you want to hear in order to get what they need, and an elected official is going to be accountable to you and tell you the good parts and the bad parts and then try to help you work through whatever the issue is. And we need more elected officials in our lives and get these politicians that are trying to get rich off of our tax dollars out of our face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mika, you're also a co-founder of the Pontiac Policy Council. Can you tell us more about the work that you guys do in the community? Yes. Yeah, so the Pontiac Policy Council was founded by myself, Autumn Butler, and Councilman Kermit Williams. And we founded it because we were going to meetings across the state um, with people from Detroit talking about Detroit was going through emergency management, people in Flint talking about Flint was going through emergency management and how we could lift up those communities, and nobody from Pontiac was there. And so one of the convenings that happened um, at the time, uh, she worked for Sugar Law Center, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and I was like, uh-huh. you know, why isn't Pontiac? being represented. And she was like, well, we invited them. They just don't come. And so Kermit has been a longtime friend. So I called them and I said, "Um, yeah, I don't know why you're not here, but next time you need to be here. And he was like, I didn't know. And what we found out was that people were reaching out to people. And let's say somebody would reach out to Kizzy, and they'd be like, well, we want to do work with kids. And Kizzy was like, well, I don't do that. Instead of Kizzy finding the person who did and connecting them, she would just let it die. And so then it was Mm -hmm. just like they just thought that nobody cared because they weren't being connected to the right people. And so we created Pontiac Policy Council in order to make sure that those connections happened. So we're, we're not trying to come in and say, oh, you know, we're the biggest organization and the only one here. It's like there's a lot of people and a lot of organizations in Pontiac doing work. You just might not know about them. So let us help you to connect them. Um, and so we started to do that, but also talking about re-empowering people. Um, so people kept saying, Pontiac people don't vote. Pontiac people don't vote. And I'm like, so emergency management, like, stripped the right of their vote away from over seven years, right? It just took it away. And so if, if I go to vote and my city council can't even make a decision, why am I voting? People had actually stopped running for city council and mayor because it, there, was, there was nothing they could do. They sat there, listened to public comments, and then went home. The emergency manager made all the decisions. And so when that form of government went away and we went back to mayor and council, we had to re-engage people around why it was important to vote, why it's important to be in the room and helping to make the decisions and holding our elected people accountable. And so Pontiac Policy Council started knocking on doors. We've knocked on every single door in the city at least three times, asking people what are their concerns, how can we help, how can we hold our electives accountable, and then giving them the training that the residents training that they need on how to advocate for themselves and how to talk to city council and the mayor, how to talk to your state representative and ask questions, and then what, what levels of government are responsible for what. Because sometimes people go to city council and complain about Woodward when Woodward is the responsibility of the county. But we don't know that. City council is the most accessible form of government that we have, so we go there and complain. But I'd be telling people, like, I need to make sure I'm cussing out the appropriate person, and I want to make sure that you are too. 
So let's talk about the levels of government, what, who's accountable for what, and how you can hold them accountable when they're not doing their job. We've now mm-hmm. – um, so I have left as a co-founder, as has Autumn Butler, and Kermit has expounded Pontiac Policy Council into Oakland Forward. Um, because he recognized, like, as a councilman, but at doing a lot of work with a lot of elected officials across the, the county, that there are pockets of people of color that are not represented in this county, um, that Oakland County is one of the richest counties in the country, and Royal Oak Township and Pontiac reside as some of the poorest cities. And so making sure that people of color, no matter where they live in Oakland County, have the same resources and the same voice as Pontiac residents. Yeah. Well, we're going to take our second break. And you are also a businesswoman. And what are, and, and actually some of the work that you did there put up is reflected in your business. So we're going to talk about Tamika, the businesswoman, and with T. Ramsey and Associates when we come back. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You know, I've heard it, someone had said it to me, but then I've seen it recently in a commercial how they say how um, you shouldn't just talk about it, you need to be about it. And it looks like you went from talking about it, talking about community, to and building legacy and building uh, generational wealth to being about doing that. When you started your own company, what was the stepping stone that sort of made you sort of say, like, mm, you know, it's time for me to be my own boss? Um, so, so there were a couple of things. One, um, my husband has been amazing and supportive, like, over our entire 20-year relationship. Um, like, when we got together, like, it was you're going to school, you're going full-time. So he was he was a very good husband and father at home to allow me to do that, but he also, like, pushed me to believe in myself a little bit more. Um, I I tell people all the time, like, black people have not had sustainability um, and, and, like, stability. And so so now older black people like my dad, he was like, when you get a job that gives, that gives you a pension and pays you good benefits, you keep that job. I don't care how bad they treat you. And it was because for a long time black people didn't have access to those jobs. And so when I got a job that had benefits and I had a 403B and, and it was like 
I'm beholden and I appreciate. And and then it was my husband saying, you work really hard for this nonprofit, and and they, they don't respect you enough, and you have skills and talents. And so I started doing some consulting on the side, but it was always a side hustle. Um, and, and one day one of my colleagues, a white woman, just up and quit her job. She was just like, y'all not treating me right, and they were treating her a lot better than they were treating me. So I was like, what? We can do that? Huh. Mm-hmm. And so it, it it was it was that she was the stepping stone that was just like she she just left she didn't have a plan she didn't have a job I was working two jobs one of them was running a full time business and I was like I can do this if I believed in myself I I don't need to and so for for I told my husband I'm like I want to run my business and he said okay so for six months I worked two full time jobs. I saved up money and I told my husband I quit at the end of the year and I said I'm going to start doing T. Ramsey and Associates 100% in January. I had money saved up for three months. I said if I don't have uh, clients or contracts by March, I will find a job. And that was in 2017 and I have not looked back since. Um, Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how did the concept of T. Ramsey and Associates come about? Okay, so this is going to sound funny. Um, but so Olivia Pope and Associates, like I was watching Scandal, now, and I was telling people, like, oh, my God, Olivia Pope, um, and the work that she did, like minus sleeping with other people's husbands, I'm like, I want to be just like her. Um, but also, like, what what consulting firms do you know that are black led, that are not a hundred percent black ran, um, that people can then have the the opportunity to pass generational wealth down to their kids and to their community? And I'm like, you see these firms, these law firms that have been around for hundreds of years, they can date back to the early 1900s or 1800s, and it's like my great-great-grandfather owned this, and we just passed it down, and, you know, now the cousin is a, an accountant, the, the, the sister is a lawyer. You know, they, they go to school and learn what they need to to make sure that this business stays successful. And and I just hadn't heard of that or seen that in the black community. And I wanted to make sure that I I offered those opportunities. Also, most of my friends are single black mothers and just couldn't really keep a job because the job was not flexible with their parenting. And then they, they started to um they started to feel like frustrated that they were moms like you know you know me being a parent is seen as a negative and I'm like there's no way in hell we should look at you know having babies and 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 raising beautiful intelligent children should we feel like we're doing something wrong because we want to be home to take care of them and provide for them and so T. Ramsey and Associates um, all of my associates are, are contractors, are independent consultants. They own their own businesses, and we work really hard to make sure that we're as flexible as possible. So, so our saying is you can be anywhere and do the work as long as the work is done. To, to give moms the opportunity to be home with their kids or to wake up and send their kids to school. That is great. Um, so you started, you set a goal for yourself. Um, tell us 
what exactly I know I'm reading about your your vision besides being Olivia Pope without without the side the side the side thing what was the vision and what does T Ramsey and Associate do so once again it comes back to Pontiac um, when the emergency manager hit the city, like, like they closed everything, like the quality of life of the residents, like, went down in, like, seconds. And, but then it was, it was people. It was seniors, retired seniors, who lived across the street from one of the parks that started a daycare, a summer camp. And they were only charging $10 per kid for the entire summer. Um, there were food pantries popping up everywhere, and a lot of it was women using food stamps that, w- that was meant for their family, buying a little bit extra and donating to the neighborhood food pantry so that others could make sure that they could eat. And, and, and a lot of those people, those groups, just did the work to keep the residents good in the city. And then as the city started to come up, the the opportunity for them to to turn into a nonprofit and get funding wasn't there. And so then all the money started going to the bigger nonprofits. And the bigger nonprofits would then like uh it's like the the oh I can't remember the name of it, but um trickle down economics where they would give money to some of these groups to do some of the work and then use their their goals as deliverables for grants and make a whole lot of money. But the the residents were still not seeing that money. But they didn't have Mm -hmm. money to help become a formalized organization. And so T. Ramsey started to work with those nonprofits and small businesses because, once again, we knew that these are the people that our community is built upon. And so if they are strong, then our community would be strong. And so we started to do a lot of free work, um, and, and that free work uh, started to get the attention of bigger firms who wanted me to do some of the same work for them, and I charged them a lot of money <laughs> so that I could continue to, to do work pro bono for people who couldn't afford it. Speaking of doing work pro bono, first of all, the work that you guys do sounds absolutely amazing, but how do you balance that, you know, pro bono? bono work and, you know, work that you charge for because, you know, especially working within uh, marginalized communities who don't have access to certain things because of, you know, finances, location. How do you balance all of that? So I work, like I, like I said, I, I work really hard to make sure that we we do work outside of Pontiac. Uh, we do a lot of work outside of Michigan, so we do a lot of national work. Um, and some of our bigger clients, like we charge like the going consulting rate for, for that work. Um, and I know that they can afford it because I've done research. So that when we're working with smaller organizations in Pontiac or in Saginaw, Benton Harbor, like we know that they're smaller groups and we can do that work for free. So a lot mm-hmm. of it is like a, a sliding scale. And if you, if, if you have the money, then we, we charge you the full amount. And if you don't, we don't charge you anything. Mm-hmm. And what are the goals? or intentions or visions that you all have for the firm? 
So it is right now with my daughter moving into it, it is being able to make sure that we're providing and creating generational wealth for the families of the women who work here and men because we now actually have a, a few men who work for us. Um, but it is and it's also like allowing us to create our own viable future. Um, so it is you can work as much as you want. You can rest as much as you want. Like you have control over your livelihood. And I just don't think people of color, especially black women, have had that opportunity much. My grandmother and my aunt, were both maids, like living maids. We used to drop them off and pick them up once a week, and my daddy would go and pick them up. Um, and we would drive for what I thought was hours and get to these really big houses. Um, and, and now as a grown-up, like, we used to drive them to White Lake to these brand-new subdivisions that have, like, moderately big houses, but they lived with somebody who lived in White Lake and took care of their household and then came home on the weekend to take care of theirs. And I just want to make sure that we're, we're starting to write that in history for black women. Now, you know, you mentioned about how with the small organizations, you know, and what they could pay. Often, and, you know, it goes both ways. Either we as black women, women of color, or people who are getting out there are like, okay, what should I charge? Or, oh, they're just trying to start out. I don't want to charge them that much when you find out later on they could pay. And, or the opposite side happens where these organizations will go like, well, you know, um, we just start now. You shouldn't, you know, if they came to you, they want you to do it for free. But if they went to the man, they'd pay them whatever they ask. How do you balance that? How do you determine it, the right price? So this is something that I'm, I'm learning now. Um, and I, I, I'm going to give a plug because I have an amazing uh, career coach, uh, Rebecca Thompson, um, that I have been working with for the past two years. And and one of the things, because it's like I, at the beginning, like I was doing everything for free because I'm just like, I love Pontiac. I need Pontiac to succeed. Um, and then it became like, you know your worth. Like I know my worth. I also know my student loan bills and my mortgage payment, right? <laughs> and so it's like I, I have, and I have an amazing bookkeeper as well who like puts me on a like a budget. And it's like you can only um, you can only sponsor things or or give away money like this amount. So if you if it's if it's five thousand dollars and you do it all by May for the rest of the year, like you can't you can't give you can't donate right because the best thing that you can do for poor people is not to become one, and it is to use your resources to help uplift. So I have packages that are for people who can't afford it, but I have packages that I am true to that you cannot negotiate me down because I know my worth. And as long as people know their worth, you will have people who come to you and say, oh, well, you can only charge me half of that. And, and yeah, I could, right? But I also know that it took me how many years of schooling? It took me all of this time to learn these things and to, and to fine-tune them. And I know my worth. So I think sometimes we, we allow, you know, um, guilt to, to lead us. 
and and once again, I, I tell my kids, like, you know, I don't give y'all all my money because I'm the one that's going to invest it wisely so that when I'm gone, you still have money to spend, right? And And that's just how it is. I can't give away all of my services because how am I going to take care of the people who I am obligated to to make sure get paid to take, to take care of their families? So it is about knowing your worth, knowing that your price points are for, and you can have some people, like dollar stores don't go out of business just because a, um, a Walmart opened up right next door. There are some people who will go to the dollar store for certain things and people who will go to Walmart. And Walmart isn't going to go out of business because a, a Macy's opened up right next door because there's different price points for each of those. So if you want to make sure that you're being available to everybody, you can have products and services at different price points, or you can have these are my prices, this is what I'm sticking with. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that does it. That, that makes sense because really, you know, like how it's almost like when you're on the airplane and they say, you know, like, put your mask on before you put it on the other one because if you don't take care of your basic things, you're not going to be in business and the, the group or something that, that needs your services, they won't have anybody to go to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's like we have to do that and I think that there is that kind of guilt that, you know, unfortunately people want to put on you like, oh, well, you know, you know, you're doing all like this, you could do this for us. But it is. It's like you need this service, I'm bringing it to you, and you need to value me, you know, for what I bring to you because I'm going to give you that value. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does your daughter see as her, what is her role going to be in the business, and does she see that long-term, what she wants to do? So she, so we are working her up from the mail room up. <laughs> you know, wow. we don't have, but, you know, the, the psychological mail room. Um, but it is important to me for her to understand that once she gets to my seat, she needs to know and understand what it took from the bottom to the top. Um, that when I'm not here, like, she can run and answer questions. She not might not be an expert at every part of it, but neither am I, but that she's aware and knows exactly what it takes to run her business. So she um, is going to community college for her associates in uh, business administration. Mm-hmm. Um and and so now she's doing everything, everything that I do. Like we we go places and we set stuff up. Um, we we do data entry. Where she's returning calls, uh, returning emails. Like I need her to understand. And I think like that's how small firms turn into big firms because the people who run them they know every every part of the business. Once again, I'm not an expert at at, at communications or social media. Like, but I know enough so that the people who I hire, like, I know exactly what they need to do and how it needs to come out. So I just need her to to understand that. She's excited, um, but I think also, like, the pains of she's the boss's daughter, uh, she learns (laughs) into that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people, like, she's 17. She's been working with me since she was 15. Um, And people expect her to have the answers because she's my daughter. 
um, and then people tr- like treat her like um, like she hasn't worked to get to this point, and she just she's in this space because she's my daughter. And so like I I expect more from her. I work her harder than I work a lot of the other staff because I know that she's going to be fighting that perception of she's the boss's daughter, so she's just here because just because of who she was born to, and not because she knows how to do the work. And I told her as a black woman like that's not a good place to be because sometimes people just hire you because you're a black woman, not because they believe in you or trust in your skills. And so you need to be able to do these things in order to move up. And so she's doing it. She's and she's doing an amazing job. She's very helpful, and she also helps me with like things like uh, Instagram and TikTok, like like the social media parts that I'm just not good at. Like she is helping to brand mm-hmm. Ramsey and Associates so that it you know it, it it's growing with the times, and when she's ready to take over, it won't be seen as this this old firm that only you know that's stuck in 19 or stuck in 2005. Um, that it, it's moving up with the times as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you had a coach and how in, how important that was. You know, and many people don't think, I could, oh, I'm going to go do my business. I got this. I know what I want to do. You had a coach. And that coach, in some ways it sounds like, helped you go up to the next level. How did you recognize that you needed a coach? How did you identify who that coach was going to be? And what would you say to someone who is starting their business, working their business, but probably should consider, think about, or look for a coach? So so I think, like, having a coach is also like having a mentor. Um, and, and once again, for some some people going into business, they can call their grandfather, they can call their uncle, they can talk to their dad because they've owned a business and has been successful and help walk them through the process. And I didn't have that. And I knew that I, I, I had the passion and the experience to, to do the services, but I didn't, I don't know how to run a business. And, and I think that's where a lot of people get caught up. Like, you love baking cakes. You can bake the best cakes. Your cakes taste amazing. But do you know how to do accounting? Like, do you know how to break down how much that cake costs you to make and that's how much you should charge? People don't always do that. And and so I saw that there was, like, a whole lot of space that I didn't know, and I started looking for it. So I went to, like, Build Institute. I started doing a Walker's Legacy. Like, they have a, a business acceleration program online. So I started doing all of this. But then I was noticing that the people who they were sending me to, to get some coaching from didn't look like me, so didn't have the, the barriers that we have. Even now in COVID-19, we keep seeing articles on how 90% of black women were not able to qualify or get loans and, and grants that were eligible for small businesses. And so even, you know, during this pandemic, black women are still being left out. And so I'm like, I need somebody who looks like me who has been successful because she's probably going to have endured some of the barriers that I'm going through and can give me some advice. And so I started looking for black women who who were in the political space, who were in the social justice space, but also 
were running like profitable businesses. And Rebecca Thompson had, has been in Michigan like doing amazing work. She ran for office. Um, and so she, she ran a nonprofit. So she, she had all of this stuff. And so I, I started just like talking to her. And she's amazing because she was just like, you know, I want to make sure you're okay. So we would just call and check in. Um, and, and then she started to do some, some coaching. And I'm like I, like, I need some help. She was really talking to me for free for a long time. And I'm like, if, if, if her free advice was helpful, then I need to honor that with paying her to get some of that same advice. And when I tell you that coaching is one of the best things that I have done, and this is coming from a woman who has been in therapy off and on for the past 25 years, because the coaching is like a therapist. And a, and a mentor for your business at the same time. I have learned some amazing things working with Rebecca that, that a therapist would not have been able to tell me because their job is to, like, you know, try to help you emotionally, where Rebecca was helping me emotionally, but making sure that I applied all of that to my business as well. So you also so, mentioned, um, well, what came to mind was also black businesses supporting each other. So not only, you know, on the individual level, um, where can you speak more about um, black businesses supporting um, just the community? Because um, not only have you spoken about, you know, generational wealth within the black community and, you know, making sure that we have enough for our families and our legacies and beyond, but there's also that, you know, institutional level. Can you speak to how important that is. So when you spend money locally, that money stays into the community. So you, if you if you go to Walmart, if Walmart is right down the street from your house, and you go to Walmart and shop, that money does not get recirculated into the community because Walmart pays its staff, which most of the time does not live in the community in which the store is, um, and then takes that money to, to, to the Walmart Foundation um, or just in – it keeps it in Walmart. But if you, if you utilize a small business, like they're going to go to the corner store. They're going to, to send their kids to camp that, that is ran by a local uh, organization. They are going to use that money that you spent there and reinvest it in the community. And so the community then sees that money rebuilding. Um, and, and I think, like, that's really important, especially in a time where we have, like, Fiverr and online resources that allow you to get some, some really good work for cheap. Like, but, but where is that money going and how, how is it helping to build? And so, like, my assistant is a person. Right, because there's like people like you can use candidly and you can use, and I'm like, no, I need a person because sometimes, mm -hmm. most of the time, my clients deserve human interaction and not just clicking links on a computer. Uh, when I'm talking about like social media, like I use people, and and I'll always ask even my clients when I'm doing events for them, when what what city they're in, I'm like, do you have local people? So if we're in Detroit, we're using Detroit-based businesses. If we're in Kalamazoo, we're using Kalamazoo-based businesses. If we're in Saginaw, and I try not to use chains, I try to use mom and pop because you know that that money is going back into the community and helping families in the community. And so sometimes it costs more, 
but but I'm also more concerned about like the the generational wealth that's coming in and not just me being rich. Um, that that was one thing like a, a, a pressing point um, with my coach and my husband because it was like you need to be making money and you can save money if you don't use all of these people. And I'm like, yes, that is true. But the the the, the vision and mission of T Ramsey is not for Tamika to get rich alone. And if it takes mm. me a little bit longer because I'm paying people and I'm not I'm not holding or making as much revenue as I could these families are still being maintained. And so I have, you know, my assistant is an amazing young lady with two children and a husband who own a house in Pontiac. Um, my, one of my business consultants owns a, a clothing, an online boutique, and does a small business consulting because she's going through and helping people with all the things that she went through. So once again, and when you see people and you know people, you work a little bit harder because you know they mama or your kids and they kids do some of the same activities together. And so it just keeps it community-based. We do have bigger clients that is just, it's regular, right? But I just make sure that the community, and, and once again, Michigan is my community. People of color are my community. Pontiac is my village. And so we always use those as opportunities to lift up. So, you know, it's not all work. It is all work. Okay. Um, you do, and it's almost like a way of not only for you to let off steam, but to, like, really keep that connection. Is it tea with Tamika? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you're doing Facebook Live. I thought it was, I watched it. I thought it was really kind of cute that your husband's in the background, you know. It's like he was a support staff. What made you decide to use social media in that way? So it's an outlet for me um, just because, you know, being a business owner, being the co-director of a statewide organization, uh, people just have this perception like she got all her stuff together. That's why, like, I do tea with Tamika. Like, my door is open. My, my kids and my husband are walking in, and now – they're in the background laughing and joking. Like, I am a, a regular, everyday black woman with black woman problems. Like, my husband will wait until I'm doing uh, any type of FaceTime, any type of Zoom, and start playing a video in the background. Like, my kids wait. Like, my, my, my eight-year-old waits until I'm on a video conference to come and wave and hug sometimes mm-hmm. with just his underwear on. Like, I need people to know, like, <laughs> you know, like, like, as, as much as y'all think I got it together because you see that I do this and I'm over here and I'm with these people, I'm just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are. I mean, I think it, 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 it is beautiful. Um, Tamika, I am, you know, again, thank you so much for being with us again. Um, I love to with Tamika because it is. It's like, you know, people <laughs> will think that you're like so together and it's nice to be able to see that, hey, this is a sister who's, you know what, there are things that I get that I sort of like, so you're laughing. Yeah, I said, what's she eating? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like a, sometimes we do take off our, our capes and take the red S off our chest, and we just let it hang out. And I think that that is just great. I appreciate all that you have shared with us today. It is, it's just yeah. like... A reality check. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy um, just being able to, to have conversations, especially with amazing black women, um, but just being able to show, like, there are multiple sides to people. And, and it's, it, you know, that one side that, that's always forward-facing isn't the only side um, and that people need to, to get to know all sides of a person. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Tamika, for sharing your words of wisdom. And, you know, I'll definitely be reflecting on some aspects um, you've spoken about throughout this whole uh, session, just generational wealth and healing and, you know, how can we envision a better, happier, wealthier black future. It's just so much to ponder about. <laughs> well, thank you very so, much for having us once again. Okay, well, we will, I mean, you know, hey, we are a, we are a squad now. We'll be on, <laughs> don't be surprised if one day on, on Tea with Tamika, you see us both pop up there with, with our with our tea or other favorite <laughs> beverage, <laughs> and uh, uh, just, just shooting the breeze. But again, Tamika, thank you so much, and our best to you and your family. And let your son know that we see him, we appreciate him, and even after this is over, you know, we will be in that fight for him and other essential workers and their family. Thank you so much. Thank you both. All right. Well, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> we want to thank our guest, Tamika Ramsey. This wife, mother, and grandmother is deeply committed to her community in Pontiac, Michigan. As the founder and principal associate of T. Ramsey & Associates, She has worked tirelessly to strengthen grassroots organizations across the country that are committed to improving their communities for every individual. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music. SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when we'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.